that should write a screenplay for a romantic comedy, like a movie, obviously, where it has this premise where like a, there, it's a woman writer for a show who who writes a sketch saying this would never happen for a woman writer for a show. And, and, you know, and then her own beliefs are kind of challenged. And then a few months passed and I actually had been working on a different novel, which I, I think I had like tried to write a fun novel and like it it didn't work on the first try like it wasn't it was I think it was an interesting novel but not a fun novel it was like a little dark or turning out to be darker than I anticipated and so then I thought to myself maybe that screenplay that someone should write should be a novel and maybe that someone who should write it should be me so then and you know then that's sort of where the title came from too of romantic comedy Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. We are so thrilled to have a truly special guest with us today, the highly acclaimed author Curtis Sittenfeld author of the recently released romantic comedy, which was the April 2023 Reese pick. Her books have been longtime favorites of so many of you, and we are truly honored to talk with her today. I am Ron Block. And I am Mary Kay Andrews. Curtis Sittenfeld is the best-selling author of six novels, Prep, The Man of My Dreams, American Wife, Sisterland, Eligible, and Rodham. Her first story collection, You Think It, I'll Say It, was published in 2018 and picked for Reese Witherspoon's book club. Her books have been selected by the New York Times, Time, Entertainment Weekly, and People for their 10 Best Books of the Year list, optioned for television and film, and translated into 30 languages. Her short stories have appeared in The New Yorker, The Washington Post, and Esquire, and in the Best American Short Stories Anthology, of which she is the 2020 guest editor. Her nonfiction has appeared in The New York Times, Time, Vanity Fair, The Atlantic Slate, and On This American Life. A graduate of Sanford University and the Iowa Iowa Writers Workshop, Curtis has appeared as a guest on NPR's Fresh Air, CBS's Early Show, and PBS's NewsHour. Welcome to the podcast, Curtis. That was a lot. (laughs) That's a slacker for you. (laughs) I don't know when you have time to write books. Welcome, Curtis. Thank you. Thank you both so much. (laughs) It's great to have you here, and thanks so much for joining us. All right, so we can't wait to talk about your book. Let's dive in. What is romantic comedy about? And also one of the things we always love to ask people, dig below the surface a little bit and tell us what it's really about. Ha! <laughs> so the the plot is that there's a woman named Sally who is in her late 30s. She's a writer at a sketch comedy show in New York. 
she's been at it for when the book opens in 2018, it's her ninth year. So she's pretty experienced and successful. And then meanwhile, she's maybe less experienced and successful romantically. She was married and divorced in her early twenties and she's not really actively looking for love. Like she's, you know, there's sort of a guy that she sees sometimes that she's not very into, but she writes a sketch making fun of the phenomenon of the male writers from this sketch comedy show dating and in some cases marrying the gorgeous, super talented, super successful female celebrities who are guests on the show. Either They're either like actresses or musical guests. And she's kind of making the point that it would never happen with like an ordinary female writer and a outrageously handsome, successful male celebrity. And then that week at the show, there's a pop singer, a super famous pop singer who she initially thinks is sort of cheesy named Noah Brewster, but then they end up having chemistry and sparks. So I don't, now do I say what it's, what it's really yes. about? <laughs> um, I think it's really about like, I guess maybe like making it into your late thirties and still being really insecure about whether, whether someone else could find you attractive or whether you're a good or bad kisser or whether, whether you deserve romantic love and, and wondering like, where do you go to the bathroom when you stay over with someone for the first time? That's what it's really, really, really about. (laughs) That is some classic stuff there too. I won't give that away, but whoa. Yeah. I love that you gave Sally all the warts and all the insecurities that we all have. Like she's uh, I love the interaction with her best friends from the show and about, you know, when can I fart in front of him? (laughs) Do I, can I, you know, all the stuff that goes on, but one thing just, you know, Ron and I sketched out what we wanted to talk to you about, but let's talk about the original spark of the idea for romantic comedy. Tell us about that. And, how the story grew from the initial seed of an idea. So my family was watching a lot of SNL during the pandemic. And I thought to myself, I thought someone should write a screenplay for a romantic comedy, like a movie, obviously, uh, where it has this premise where like a, there, it's a woman writer for a show who, who writes a sketch saying this would never happen for a, w- a woman writer for a show. And, and, you know, and then her own beliefs are kind of challenged. And then a few months passed and I actually had been working on a different novel, which I, I think I had like tried to write a fun novel and like it, it didn't work on the first try. Like it wasn't, it was, I think it was an interesting novel, but not a fun novel. It was like a little dark or turning out to be darker than I anticipated. And so then I thought to myself, maybe that screenplay that someone should write should be a novel. And maybe that someone who should write it should be me. So then, and you know, then that's sort of where the title came from too, of romantic comedy. You know what I was wondering, because this is a pandemic book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Would you have written this book if the pandemic, if if we hadn't been in the pandemic, would you have been in that place? Could the story happen outside of that framework? Because it is kind of the framework for the book. 
Right. So I don't think it's giving away too much to say the 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 book starts in 2018. It goes through a week in the life of the show. Noah and Sally have chemistry. At the end of the week, they're at like an after after party and she says something that makes the conversation go off the rails. And then two years pass. The pandemic arrives. They're both you know, sort of isolated. Noah is back in his his mansion in LA, but he's like not touring. He's hardly seeing people. She has returned from New York to Kansas City and is staying with her her stepfather and her her stepfather's beagle. And so they're both more isolated and bored than they've been and lonely for most of their adulthood. And he he reaches out, emails her, and then there's this whole e- email correspondence. But I think that I would not have written this novel if not for the pandemic. Like it was very consciously, clearly my own sort of attempt to provide myself with like entertainment and escape and lightness and humor. And even the fact that it's like, it's like a sketch comedy show is the setting for a lot of it. And then a romance is happening on top of it. And I think sort of mashing together those two topics, I felt like if that's not going to kind of put a little spring in my step, nothing will. And it was, we can sort of go into this or not, but it was, it was incredibly enjoyable to do the research for this because it was like reading books by comedians and listening to podcasts by comedians and things like that. I mean, as to whether their story could have happened if not for the pandemic, I mean, I think, you know, like obviously you as a writer know writers are sort of manipulators, right? So we can kind of make any, any story happen. I mean, I I don't know. I, I don't know if it had to be a pandemic if the pandemic had to be a plot element, but it is a plot element yeah. and it does affect them and change them and kind of make them think about their priorities. Definitely. Yeah. It totally couches their relationship though, too. It's kind of a nice place to put it into so they can explore certain themes and, and actions. So let's just talk in more general terms about romance as a genre. While you have a little bit of that in a lot of your work, you've never really focused on it like this. So why did you decide to do that? You've answered that just a little bit, but what, what do you think about romance in general? Well, I mean, I think it's it's obviously like a very wide category. And I think it's its borders are a little bit murky in terms of, you know, what does and doesn't kind of count as a romance by different people's definitions. But for me specifically, I felt like I wanted to tell this story about people, you know, finding each other and connecting and flirting and kissing and having sexual tension. And I don't, I think I thought more in terms of like, I want to tell this specific story that, you know, the one that I thought someone else should write while I was watching Saturday Night Live and less like, like I have arrived at the point where I will write a romance just because I don't think most writers think in those categories. I think it's more booksellers and publishers that think and and that kind of you know, I think there's actually quite quite a lot, if not most books, exist in more than one category. It's true. Did you shy away from having from calling it, titling it, romantic comedy? Because that's sort of stepping forward and saying this is a romantic comedy. I did not shy away from that because of the genesis yeah. of the whole book, um, and I also. I mean, I don't know this. I don't know if this is so self-evident that it's absurd for me to say it aloud. But 
it's also like like it's a romance that takes place against the backdrop of the sketch comedy world. So I, I like when a title has multiple meanings right. and Sally herself is trying to write a screenplay for a romantic comedy. Like it's, it's sort of the way there are some people who kind of always have it on their to-do list to like write a novel. Sally is kind of always trying to write a screenplay for a romantic comedy. So it had a bunch of, right. A bunch of sort of meanings within, within the book. I, so yeah, I didn't, I did not feel particularly particular hesitation. Yeah, I, I thought, that, again, the title, I was going to ask it a little bit, but now's a great time to pull this in. I, I love the two words, romantic and comedy, because a lot of the romance, when they get right to the edge of, of really caring and stuff, you you were amazing at throwing in a comedic phrase or a, a feeling or a thought that people had. Did you know that you were such a comedy genius? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> I laughed out loud. Oh, LOL. Um, I mean, thank you. I think, I think whether I'm a comedic genius is like a very subjective question, but I'll say, I'll say thank you if you've declared that I am. Um, I mean, again, like it's actually very interesting. I guess if you're a sort of nerdy kind of person, like I am, it's kind of interesting analyzing humor and thinking like, what is funny? And and even like if you look at SNL, what percentage of the sketches are funny? What are the all-time most popular sketches? Like what makes and there's I think there's different reasons, but there's some that are like funny because you know, there's there's this sort of almost physical slapstick component or like you, the viewer, have gotten to know the cast member and you find them so charming and endearing. And then there's some that are just like they're so well written or they capture something verbally that like you have wanted to hear put into words, some cultural moment without even maybe knowing that you wanted it. So it's very, it's very interesting to me. And to be frank, I mean, there've been plenty of people who've said to me, I've laughed out loud. And then I know there is also, I mean, obviously you, you can never please everyone. There are some readers who are like, this is not funny. And I, I did know to get to that question, um, the, the title question, I, I knew if I t titled a book romantic comedy, there would be some people who would say this is neither romantic nor comedic, right. but it's like, no matter what I write, there's a hundred percent chance that some people won't like it. So you just, you sort of have to go with your own like interests and instincts. Yeah, I think trying to analyze what's funny and what makes funny. I, I mean, I write comedic stuff. And I think it, I always yeah. feel like if you look down, it's like a tightrope. If you look down, you'll yeah. fall right? If you look closely yeah. at it, you'll fall off. And I loved when you wrote about when Sally's talking about what, what makes a joke land. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so – I mean, it's interesting because – I think that the the conversation about writing humor is almost like a more specific version of a conversation about writing fiction period where I think what you're I think exactly what you're saying that like like you know you have to have some guiding beliefs but then there also has to be some some 
instinct and even some like innate confidence because there's a lot of reasons not to do it. And and again, I know that like some people would be like, this is not funny, but it's sort of like, well, if you think it's not funny, then it's, it's probably not an ideal book for you. There actually are a lot of people who do think it's funny and different people have different, you know, sense of sense, senses of humor, sense of humors. <laughs> 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 Whatever the multiple is, I, I know it's like br- brothers-in-law, brother-in-laws. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you touched a little bit on your uh, research and, and kind of basing this. There's no hiding it that it's based a little bit on SNL in the back there. A little bit, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> How much of it did you actually absorb, and what resources did you use to get to that point to recreate the world? So there's a 745-page oral history of SNL called Live from New York, and it is a joy to read. Like, you you can't stop. Um, and then there's also, there's I'm looking up at the shelf above my desk, there's all these memoirs, like Colin Jost, who's still there. I mean, of course, there's like the sort of recent classics, Tina Fey's Bossy Pants, um, Amy yeah. Poehler's Yes, Please. There's also... Yeah. Rachel Dratch wrote one. Tracy Morgan wrote one. There's someone from the early 90s, Jay Moore, wrote this memoir called Mm -hmm. Gasping for Airtime, which is, I think it's kind of the bluntest or least diplomatic. Like, he likes Lauren Michaels, but he had a, I think he, Jay Moore, had a sort of overall bad experience at SNL in his two years there. And he's pretty candid. There's all these, you know, podcasts where it's like WTF with Mark Marin interviewing many, many people who've been on the show, including Lauren Michaels himself. Like he chased him for a long time. And then finally, Lauren Michaels agreed to an interview or, you know, there's Conan O'Brien hosting his podcast. There's Conan O'Brien as a guest on other people. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a documentary called Saturday Night, like a sort of low budget documentary that goes through, again, a week in the life of a show. There's there's online um, on the SNL YouTube channel. There are these little shorts that are like a few minutes that say like, this is how the makeup department works. Or, and it's really it's like a joy to watch them. It's It's very interesting. And it was very useful to me as a fiction writer. Yeah, because you couldn't Fun. you couldn't have. If you were writing it during the pandemic, probably, I'm guessing, you couldn't have gone and done any firsthand research. That's true. And frankly, if I had said, I am writing an <laughs> SNL novel, like, I would like... <laughs> I don't, I think they would have been like, best of luck to you. Like I did attend a dress rehearsal when I was almost finished with a novel and the dress rehearsal is sort of indistinguishable from the live show, except that there are actually some extra sketches that end up getting cut, but like it's full costume. It, you know, goes without pausing or whatever. And there were like a few things like it, it almost was reassuring to me that, that it was essentially as I had pictured it and there weren't revelations, but again, that was pretty close to the end. Oh, I also, I interviewed two people who've worked on the show in the recent past. Did you hear from anybody at the show after the book came out? Have you heard from anybody? So hmm, I think the short answer is not really, I've heard sort of secondhand a little bit where like somebody told me like, Oh, a bunch of these people are all reading it or the word was, they said they're obsessed with it. Um, and then, I mean, I wouldn't be, again, I don't, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I think that, that often 
the closer any of us are to something that's written about, whether in fiction or nonfiction, the more territorial or protective we often feel and the less likely we are to embrace it. So like if something is set in the city where I grew up or at a school that I attended or something. And so if people from SNL either didn't read or didn't love the book, it would not shock me. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So you built this, the night owls and it was fictional, but what real life celebrities would you invite to host on your show? If you could have (laughs) both a host and a musical guest. Well, I mean, I think that, I think that SNL does a great job of that. You know, like it's, I feel like it's a very well oiled machine. I I think that maybe at one point, Sally talks about Diana Ross being the musical guest and it being this really magical moment. I, as far as I know, Diana Ross has never been a musical guest. And I've thought that it would be pretty awesome if she was the musical guest and then her daughter, Tracy, who's obviously this like hilarious, successful actress who's very funny. You know, she's like the mom and blackish if she was the guest host. So I feel like that's like kind of my fantasy combination. I mean, I also, there is like this, uh, the Indigo girls, like there've been sort of spoofs of the Indigo girls on the show, but the Indigo girls themselves, again, as far as I know, have never been on. So I think they would be pretty, pretty awesome musical guests. Yeah. That would be awesome. Be great. Sexism and double standards. You look at really closely in romantic comedy. Would you talk about incorporating those themes? And let's let's definitely talk about the Danny Horst rule. Well, so the Danny Horst rule is what it's that's the name that Sally gives to this sketch she writes, where which is sort of based on her. She again, she's in her late thirties. She has an office mate who's more than a decade younger than she is, who's both a writer and an on-air cast member. And he starts dating this gorgeous, very famous um, actress, like a, and, and so she's kind of saying, you know, it's like, like it happens all the time that men date up, but it doesn't seem to happen as much that women date up. And so I mean, I do, I think that that is a real phenomenon that it's pretty, I think it would be a pretty unusual person who's never observed that either in the celebrity landscape or in, in our own lives. Yeah. We could call it the Pete Davidson rule in real life. (laughs) Okay. So here's one of the sort of amusing to me aspects of the publication of, of romantic comedy is that I spend a lot of time talking about Pete Davidson. And I will say, I think that he's like charming. I think he's handsome. Like it's not, I don't, I wouldn't say I actively yearn to date him. I know, but, but it doesn't, it does not seem strange to me that many I mean, I think if he like, if he were like, oh, 47 year old Curtis who lives in Minnesota, like, I want to I, I sweep you off your feet. I think I would be like, oh, like, but just sort of from this distance, I'm not like my dream in life is to go on a date with Pete Davidson. But, but again, I think he seems actually lovely and it doesn't seem weird and mysterious to me that he has all these high profile relationships. It's more, I think after giving this, quite a bit of thought the part that i think is sort of curious is like why don't all the gorgeous male celebrities in the world want to date 
hilarious, talented comedians. Like that's, so that's the part that would restore balance to the universe. <laughs> <laughs> it would. It would. But now the double standards go. You go a little farther with the double standards in the book. How? How so? Uh, I think Sally's always examining the power structure at at the night owl and the. I don't know the balance, the inner office balance. And I think I, I found that really interesting and true to life. I mean, yeah, well, I do. I think certainly like with SNL, there have always been female writers since the beginning in 1975. And there have always been on, on air, like female, very talented, beloved female cast members. I, I do think, and so in, in the book, Sally mentions that um, she and the Night Owls were both born in 1981, and in real life, SNL and I were both born in 1975. So I feel like for the first, like, I don't know if it's like 35 or 40 years of my life, I think the show almost always had more of a male flavor. Like I think things changed a bit. I mean, again, there was always female talent, but like the dominant tone always, which again, these are very subjective terms. And I think they're the way I'm talking about them now is like unnecessarily binary, but you know, things sort of shifted with like the Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, um, Maya Rudolph era. And then I think, with more recently with like A.D. Bryant and Kate McKinnon. Like I, I feel like those, I mean, there's so much talent I think on the show in the recent past and currently, but I think that they were kind of particular powerhouses and it felt, it felt female dominated mm-hmm. in a way I had never expected to happen in my lifetime. Like I almost hadn't even known to want it or something. So, I mean, I don't, I think that absolutely, I think that romantic comedy examines double standards. I don't know if it kind of settles on having any particular message, because I don't know if that's what fiction really does, right? Not fun fiction. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I mean, I, I always cringe when I hear people saying, oh, you know, this is fluff or that's fluff or that's a beach book. And I always want to say, why, why does a book have to be, why does a book have to be a guilty pleasure? Right, right. Why does there have to be guilt about enjoying yourself? That's an excellent question. Well, so I want to talk a little bit. I don't know if this was a uh, deliberate part of the book, but one of the things that struck me as I was reading it is the optics of celebrity and how people are perceived. They have their own cocoon where they interact with each other, not only the romantic parts, but also the inter-office relationships. But the way the world looks in on them and how they judge them very differently. Was that intentional? And and if so, let's. what's your view on that? So, I mean, I, I am someone who reads celebrity gossip or, you know, just sort of like I look at people.com a ton as a sort of form of procrastination. And I think it's, it's not an accident that it's people.com because that feels, it feels not cruel and it often feels like the celebrity or their publicist cooperated with it. But I do think our culture's relationship with celebrity is really fascinating and you know that we're sort of fascinated by them but like want to look down on them often or disparage them or think like oh they're beautiful but they're dumb and 
like I, I have certainly met a few very famous people and my experience has not been that they're dumb in those those kind of limited interactions that they and and Sally kind of says this about the host that they tend to be charismatic and you know sort of trying to give the people around them what they want in a in a public setting um so I do like I think I think there's just a lot of tensions in that way and then I think a specific tension is I think in life we often wonder um, is my interaction with this person, how, how real or how fake is it? How real am I being? How fake am I being? And I think that gets magnified with celebrities where like, if a celebrity is posting something on social media, is it real? And it's like riddled, riddled with typos and, or like, they're like, I woke up like this, you know, like it's sort of, or is it just totally fake? And is it like, you know, you took, 75 selfies to get the selfie where you look good enough to be like, I woke up like this, or, you know, is it, was it written by some social media ghostwriter for you? Like what, what, where is the realness? Uh, I think that's a really intriguing question, even when the stakes are kind of low. Yeah. I think social media has given it to everybody. We've, we've all, we've all kind of taken that on a little bit through social media. Yeah. And that's a turning point at one point in in Sally's relationship with Noah when a when a paparazzi catches them hiking, and and Sally and his Sally takes Noah's reaction because he immediately sort of moves away. She takes it to mean one thing, and he he takes it to mean another thing. And I think that was a really interesting kind of turning point in what was happening yeah. between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I also think in general with celebrities and, and like the paparazzi, like, it's like, you know, there's, I think pretty clear cases where a celebrity is cooperating. And then there's pretty clear cases where a celebrity is not cooperating. And then there's a lot of blurry middle ground where you think like, how could they have known that you'd be shopping at such and such store and dress so cutely unless they were alerted. But, but also, I mean, at at times it also feels like a clear violation and, you know, people are with their kids and it just doesn't, it seems like the kids don't want it. The parents don't want it. This is a word that I'm shying away from because it's hard to pronounce. Epistolary. It's it's so funny because actually I I feel like of course much like Pete Davidson this word comes and and I and still I'm not sure how to pronounce it's either a, it's like epistolary or epistolary, epistolary. Yeah, I think so do you, do you pronounce the T I don't okay I don't so there's no way to find out no I actually think I, I kind of wait should I look right now should we solve this this mystery solve the mystery we, <laughs> while you're looking it up. Okay. Talk talk amongst yourselves now. (laughs) These kinds of novels seem to be having a revival lately. And, you know, I listen to romantic comedy, as I told you before we started. And then I listen to Julia Whalen's Thank You for Listening. And I I listen to your book back to back with hers. And hers also has this great epistolary (laughs) letters, (laughs) letters, texts, emails. And I wondered. Because it's such a great showcase for charming banter. 
And I wonder why more writers aren't aren't doing it because I think it it cat it touches a nerve with contemporary readers who've never received a letter in the mail. <laughs> Had you planned to write uh, put this element in the book that neither of us can pronounce? Had you planned that for the book ahead of time? So yeah, there's this extended email section, like chapter the the book is three long chapters. So it's like 300 pages, 150 pages are the, a week in the life of the show. Then there's like this middle chunk. That's about, I think 50 ish pages. That's just like the emails where Noah basically says like, is this still your email after two years? And she responds and, you know, it's sort of like they're sending each other, like, you know, sort of brief two paragraphs email emails that then explode into like 11 paragraph emails within like a day or two about everything they've ever thought. Yes, I did know I wanted to have an email section from the beginning. And I told, I mentioned it to my, my British editor and my American editor, and I think they both were a little bit skeptical and then they read it and they were totally fine with it. But I mean, I, like I definitely, I do often have a clear vision of what I want to do, which doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's like objectively right or objectively the best idea, but I did conceive of it that way from the beginning. It works really well. The mystery is solved. Epistolary. Yeah. So it is. The, I, I, the I think is that pronounced. Here's, again, I've overthought this. I've overthought it without ever checking, but if you say epistolary, the, the, Piss it makes sounds, it a sort of yeah, not, not beautiful dirty. word. Yeah. <laughs> but if not you the think about word. the root, which is epistle. Ep- <laughs> <laughs> no, not a, no more of this. <laughs> I'll make you practice. <laughs> so we're wondering too, um, was there any big takeaways for you after writing it? Like, you know, you start with one idea in your head at the end. Did you have a whole different takeaway? But I also want to know what takeaways you've heard from readers that have surprised you. Well, I mean... I would say this is like the lightest and most fun book that I've written in, you know, I've, it's my eighth book and I, I've been, my first book came out 18 years ago. And I, in some ways, the reaction has been actually so sweet and positive on the whole. And people say kind of like, oh my God, like I just wanted a book like this, like, things have been hard in my life. Like there's been a family crisis or like I myself have been sick or like, I just feel like the the state of the world is very depressing and having this escapist delight, like made me very happy. And, and I do feel like in some profound way that makes me think like, Oh my God, should I deliberately write happier books to try to bring happiness to readers. And I was talking about this a little bit with my brother and he was saying, well, like, you know, maybe your more serious books actually bring a different kind of comfort or like, are a different kind of potential gift. But it did make me think like, yeah, like, should I write more romantic books? Because I almost think of it like I I actually I have a friend who's like she's a law professor and she's brilliant and she happens to be able to make delicious chocolate chip cookies. And so it's like if she just, you know, brings delicious chocolate chip cookies to your house, you're like, oh, my God, these are so good. And I kind of feel like like the 
I, there's not that many things that I feel like I'm truly proficient in, but if I, if I have the ability to write like a fun novel, sh- should I only write, should I, should those be my chocolate chip cookies? <laughs> That's a good analogy. I love it. I mean, there aren't a lot of people who are going to turn away a chocolate chip cookie. I mean, have I ever? <laughs> <laughs> also not. <laughs> Well, congratulations on being a Reese pick for the second time, Curtis. That lightning doesn't strike twice that often. Would you uh, share about how you found out that you were a Reese pick and how it felt and what it means for the success of a book and how I can become one? Those are the things we need to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, like, I do not think that a writer can really cause a book to be a pick. Like, and in all honesty, there was a, I had a little bit of an education because so in 2018, my story collection, you think it, I'll say it was picked as a Reese book club pick. And I think her book club was at a sort of earlier stage where some of the sort of protocols weren't firmly established. So it just felt like that felt more casual. And now my understanding is that with the book clubs like Jenna's book club or good morning America, that a publisher submits a book like easily a year in advance. Mm -hmm. And they, I I think truthfully, it was a shorter time frame for my book. But I, I think that I said like, Oh, have they ever done the same book twice? And I think that actually around the time I asked, they hadn't, but then they chose Celeste Ng's book as a second Reese club pick. So there was a precedent. And I mean, it was sort of, um, like I knew it was being considered and then, cause you know, like it, I think that so many things in life, it feels like from the outside, it feels like, you know, something fell from the sky, but from the inside, it's like a job offer or whatever. Like there's back and forth and you know that it might happen and you're crossing your fingers and whatever. Um, I, I mean, something that was exciting about this is Reese's company, Hello Sunshine, for the second year this year, they've sort of led this program that's called Lit Up. And it's, they choose five female underrepresented writers, writers from sort of under underrepresented in publishing backgrounds. And they choose them based on manuscripts they've submitted, complete manuscripts, whether it's like memoir or, um, you know, young adult or... And then they pair them with a former book club pick author to be their mentor. So there's like five fellows, five mentors. And this year I was a mentor for this incredibly talented um, writer whose name is Tolani Akinola, um, who she's, I mean, like, I feel like we'll all be like, you know, talk, talking about her in like a year or two for this amazing first novel that she's written. But this is a really long answer. But the the there was a retreat for the writers, um, for the like fellows and the mentors in Nashville in early March. And at that retreat, like I filmed with Reese Witherspoon filmed the sort of announcement of the, of the book club pick, which was like this delightful bonus and treat because it wasn't, those two things were like a sort of serendipitous, you know, timing. It was, they were not directly linked, but that, that was like a, cause again, I mean, like I'm someone, I think we probably all know like the writer's life is sort of 
unglamorous and solitary. It's not, it's not necessary to really be wearing like real clothes most of the time. So it's like, there is, I feel like every so often there's the movie version and that totally felt like the movie version where, where I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, you know, I'm standing next to her and she's so lovely. And, I feel so like awkward yet grateful. So I don't, I don't know if that answers the question. No, that does. It makes, it puts it all in perspective. It's great. I love that they do so much more than just the picks though, too, to help the other un- underrepresented yeah, I mean, writers. It's, like it's a, huge. Yeah. 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 It's, it, and it's, it's also something where I think it's actually such a, such a cool and such a smart program because like, I think it's something, I think that they actually have more of the, book club pick authors are willing to, to kind of be mentors than they even need because, it, you know, so many people feel like, Oh my gosh, like I feel so grateful or like nobody has a writing career who wasn't given like some boost or didn't have a little, right. a little fairy dust fall on their lap at some point. Definitely. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm, Oh my God, I can't believe it's time already. We're running out of time, but I have just one more fun question. So you mentioned earlier that you're a big pop culture aficionado. What are the things or people that we should all be paying attention to? Oh my goodness. Wait, I can, I, I can I like stand up for a second in my, um, wait, this, this book is coming out on Tuesday. Have, uh, is this on your radar? What's the title? Everything. It's, it's called, oh, is it like, I know. So yeah, there, it's, yeah. <laughs> Everything's fine by Cecilia Rebess. No, but it is now. It is. It's a first novel and it's, magnificent it's it's about these two recent college graduates who went to the same college which is never named but and it's a white conservative guy and a more progressive black woman they both work at goldman sachs and they develop this very intense friendship that then sort of segues into like their sexual tension and I won't give anything away but it's there's like a lot going on and it's so smart and well-written about everything, like about human nature and about being in your twenties and about being attracted to someone and about politics. And yeah, it's very, it's an awesome book. And then I also, I just did an event. If anyone has a weakness for boarding school novels, mm-hmm. um, I just did an event. I mean, I, I think I have a weakness for first novels in general, because I just think they often, you know, contain like everything the writer has ever experienced or thought up to that point. But there's a, there's a book called, um, Foster Dade Explores the Cosmos by a writer named Nash Jenkins. And it's set at sort of a stand-in for Lawrenceville, the kind of, you know, fancy boarding school in New Jersey. And it's it's kind of like if you want like a, a very sort of very smart and analytical and also like juicy sex and drugs and privilege type of novel i'm in (laughs) this will this will delight you awesome awesome well i think that's all we have time for i mean we could go on and on and on i know i know know. yeah no this has been very fun thank you i mean i could ask you who's your who's your favorite celebrity to stalk but, oh my god! I would I would never never stalk anybody. No, I, would, I, meant, I would. I meant you know, uh, so, you know, avid, like, avidly consume information about. Yeah, correct, well, yeah, correct. Yeah, I, literally follow. No, no. I mean, if there's somebody when you see it I mean, on people.com. 
Right. Like, I mean, well, first of all, my standards are so low. It's almost like easier to say, who wouldn't I read an article? Like I'll read an article about like four, three reality TV show stars whose <sighs> shows I have never seen. Like, I, And I don't even know who they are. Like, I mean, I think that probably because of my age, which is 47, you know, some of like, like Julia Roberts to me is, you know, like she's kind of like the ultimate glamorous yes. movie star-ish movie star. I mean, there's, there's so many, like some of the, I mean, I, I love the current cast, like on SNL, like I love Bowen Yang. I love Ego Wodum. I love like Michael Che and Colin Jost. I, I do. I, I think that, you know, like if, if ever there's like a Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson were at this event, like, of course it's kind of, yeah. For, for retroactive research, I need to read about it. Of so. course. <laughs> <laughs> so, Curtis, it's been just so amazing to have you with us. Uh, continued success with everything. Where can our listeners connect with you online to keep up on your career and any upcoming events? Well, I'm I'm still on Twitter. Who knows? Yeah, how, <laughs> like, for how long, right? I know. Yeah, for the next 15 minutes, I'm still I'm, <laughs> at Sitting Belt on Twitter. I have a I'm on Facebook. And I have, I have a website, curtisittenfeld.com. So, um, but you can most easily find me in your local indie bookstore. Correct. Perfect That's right. Answer. That's a perfect answer. Definitely. Yeah. So thank you again so much. And thank you to all of our listeners. We can't tell you adequately enough how much we appreciate your support. If you'd like a copy of Romantic Comedy, and trust us, you do, head over to the friendsandfictionbookshop.org page to purchase a copy while also helping our beloved indie bookstores. Tune in for a new episode each Friday, and please be sure to tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.